Sí, sí. <risa> Hi, darling. What up? I'm Autumn Brown, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in Minneapolis. Hi, I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, queer and naked writer based in Detroit, um, author of some books, working on another one. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast on surviving apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And we're back. And this is so we're exciting because this is like the, we're actually back together. Aww. This is the first episode that we're recording of the second half of our 2019 season where it's just the two of us talking to each other. And I know I I've you. been missing talking I to you. you so I know you've been missing talking you know to I me. Miss you, and I know our listeners have been missing us talking to each other. So this is just so nice. So we thought that we would use this call time today recording time to basically just catch it up and um, share with each other what have we been up to and let our listeners in on a little bit of like why is our schedule so <laughs> this year <laughs> like what's, what's going on with life <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes okay so you are having a banner year you had pleasure activism come out in the spring um, and you've been in like back-to-back events all for most of the year because you've got pleasure activism happening and then you also have this um, series of emergent strategy immersions happening all over the um, place. in various cities all over the country and that's been happening all year. Yeah. And then right now you're working on another book. Yes. And I saw on the internet a video <laughs> that you posted in which you were like giving people like a live <laughs> view of your writing process yes. and how distractible you are um, because of, I'm guessing, a, some level of creative resistance to your process. I so mean, it's like, do you want to talk about that a little uh, bit? I do. I'm so, I mean, like, I think, I think part of, I wanted to share that video and kind of share the process because I feel like, I don't know what other people's creative process is like, but I always feel so much shame about mine. Um, well, Bull I feel bear. shame about it until I complete the project. And then I'm like, beast. Like, that's yeah. how you write a book, you know? That's right. So, <laughs> But during it, like, while I'm in it, I'm just like, in my mind, like, when I set aside time. So it's like, okay, this is going to be time where I write. So in my mind, what happens is I wake up early. I go sit at a desk, which I don't even have a desk. But in my mind... I go sit at this desk. <laughs> my mental desk. My mental desk. I've tried to purchase. I've had a desk my, set my up My spiritual many times. desk. Spiritual desk. <laughs> my know, emotional support desk. Ancestral desk. It's like, it's a desk that is there in my mind. And my computer is on it. My notes are next to it. Maybe there's like stuff up on the wall that's all like laid out. Like, here's what your book will look like. And uh -huh. that's the process in my mind. And then what actually mm -hmm. happened, and then I'm like, 
I turned off the internet and like I just dedicate myself for days to, mm-hmm. you know, in a, a meaningful engagement in writing this book. Um, and so what actually happens is often like I'll wake up at six o'clock with anxiety brain with like Ooh. all the different thoughts of my entire book trying to get in at once. Um, and so being like, I got to run and like, you know, so I just like start writing a note on my phone or something. And right before you've even like peed be- my, or I have drank not water. Peed, so my bladder is full. You know exactly the look, right? It's very or I'm stressful. trying to write while trying to kegel walk to the because everyone kegel walks to the bathroom <laughs> in the morning, right? Where you just like hold it. We in, all kegel walk to the hold bathroom. It hold it in. Kegel, kegel, kegel. Right. Which someone told me they thought it was kegel, like bagels, the other day. What I think is kegel. It's it both both pronunciations are acceptable. Okay, because bagel spelled with an A is what I responded. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I like you know in Minnesota they say bagel. Bagel it's really upsetting. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Jeez. Anyway, I always feel like if you can hear that your accent is not the best choice for how to pronounce something, why not change, change? your accent? <laughs> anyway, uh, ooh, is that I like dominant that. culture? Anyway, it is very dominant culture. Well, but but I think sometimes the, sometimes the dominant culture just expresses itself through me without me really making a choice. I didn't about choose it. that. Although I will say, <laughs> I think the best accent that I found on my phone for the things you can choose to give you direction is the Southeast Asian accent of English. It's the most beautiful one. Oh, it's okay. the most beautiful one by far. I wish we could all do that. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> but that would be racism. I think so. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm actually trying to work it out. Where I'm like, everyone should have the best one, which is not the white one. What the heck is that? What do we do about that? Yeah. It's an impossible problem to solve. We should do another another episode someday about future linguistics or something. Yeah, totally. Um, But meanwhile, you're kegel walking. Anyway, so I'm kegel walking to the bathroom with my phone in my hand, trying to get like the whole book out of my brain. And I'm very focused for like the first like two seconds. And then like I usually keep my phone on airplane mode when I sleep, because in my mind that protects my brain from the alien radiation forces that are constantly moving through the phone. Um, And it's better than sleeping with aluminum foil around my head. So I run to the bathroom and then at some point while I'm on the toilet, I'm like, I should just look at the internet for like five seconds before I really just to check and see if anything major happened between last night and this morning. Did someone die? That's the only thing I really. (laughs) That's why I always use the internet. Anyone dead? Right. So anyone dead? uh, Because apocalypse turns out. Turns out (laughs) there's always someone dead. A of all, there's always someone dead. (laughs) B of all, it's rarely someone I know or need to know about. And C of all, there's a lot of other information on there that then I then I will so I'm on the toilet and like it seems like sometimes an hour passes of just the internet and me and the toilet and I'm not pooping. You know that's not good for your pelvic floor to sit on the toilet for that long. Yeah I mean I am exaggerating my pelvic floor is okay. amazing but <laughs> especially since I started doing these kegels <laughs> so uh, anyway but <laughs> <laughs> I'm the happy time for you. thank you well I got it from you you really taught me about the importance of my pelvic floor and I feel like whenever I kegel I'm thinking of you I'm like okay. we're kegeling together you know <laughs> are you kegeling all the time or am I just doing I, it by myself I, I'm I'm off my kegel practice I need to get back on that horse let's kegel together let's be kegel part friends okay. kegel friends kegel, kegel accountability buddies I kegel accountability yes so cab 
a cab. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I hope that people are so grateful for all of this. So, okay, so an hour. So anyway, passes on the hour with the sometimes more than that passes of just like <laughs> internet, right? Which for me is like I'm looking through Instagram, and then I'm like, wait, maybe something is on Facebook that's not on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Go over there, <laughs> no, and then randomly Twitter, my least fave, but I'll just check and be like, anything here. Um, and sometimes I'll just be like, what else is Friendster still around? You know, like, I'll just be like, where can I find more data on the internet? Um, and then, and then finally I'm like, oh wait, this is my time to be writing. (laughs) And so then I feel very guilty, rush back to my computer, turn off the internet. I usually work in like 15 minute stints before I try to reach for my phone or reach for something. And I'll be like, luckily I have it on airplane mode. Often that will deter me and be like, no bitch. Go right. back and write. It's so it's important so, to have that one extra step. That one extra step. I'm like mm-hmm. Google verifying my brain, right? I'm just like, no, are you committed <laughs> to being a writer or not? And I will often say things like that. Like, where's your commitment? Like, do you really care about this or not? And make myself put it back down. And I usually can make like three or four rounds of that before I then I'm like, no, I, sh- I do. I should check, right? So it was. it's so important for me often to go to a place where the internet is just not available to actually do the level of focused writing I need to do, which I did a couple weeks ago. I went to Or Hot Springs, and um, mostly it was really a powerful space to be and to be writing in um, because I would wake up super early and go sit in one of the baths there and just write by hand on paper, which I miss doing and I need to do a lot more of. Um, but when I'm home, I'm just like, oh, I'll do it on my computer, sometimes on the phone. And then interspersed in that is like occasional eating I get very like, I can't, I can't cook. I can't do food. Like I can't do this. So it's just like, I need toast. I need cereal. I need like frozen food that I can heat up for the moment. Like as soon as I decide I need food, I just need it to be super fast and I can stuff it in my face. And I only clean myself if I'm like, it would be good to sit in the bath to write. Like it's really disgusting. And, but you know, I thought this was so (laughs) bad. And then when I went to, um, I've done a few writing retreats and at each one of them, other writers were like, same. Basically, like when you really get in there, it's like hygiene, going to work out, like all this other stuff is like, whatever. I'm a writer. I've got to write. And and also because we often have these very short windows to really give ourselves to writing in a dedicated way. Right. Um, and I'm in the throes of it right now. So the book that I'm I'm working on is on facilitation and mediation. And it's been, I will say the good things I've done for myself is I've been very on my self-care like body care during this. So like I've gone and gotten really good massages during this process. I've been like working out. Um, I did the school of embodied leadership. I was on the teaching team last week. It's like our generative somatics boot camp. That's when you were covered in dirt and tears. I was covered in dirt and tears. It's like Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things. Um, So I did that and I got into the PT practice. And so I've been, doing crunches every day, doing upper arm work every day, like just moving my body, stretching out my, jo- you know, like rolling my joints around and just making sure I don't end up totally in one little Z shape uh, mm-hmm. by the end of this. And, and I have to that- say, Adrienne, on yeah. this tip, your skin looks amazing right now. Thank you. I, I've like been your drinking self-care regimen is really, so much really water. For you. Like in yeah. absence of food, I just drink a ton <laughs> of water and then Kegel walk to the bathroom every five minutes. But it's really mostly water. And then being at the hot springs, I'm sure was like really helpful too because I was just like sweating it all out. 
Um, and I will say the hot springs was dope because I fucking figured out my book. So you know how this is when you're writing a book where you're just like, oh, oh, it's like yeah. this, you know, like yeah. those moments where you're like, ew, I thought this was the end, but it's the beginning. And I'm really I excited feel like- about yeah, I feel like there's a I think about like the metaphor I often think about for this is like I remember when I moved to New York City and was learning to navigate the subway system. Yes. And at first I at first it was like I couldn't figure out. Then it was like I needed I needed constantly to be checking the map or checking the this or checking the that in order to be yes. able to just like get from point A to point B. And then I remember that there was a point about two to three months into my time living in New York City where suddenly it was like the city materialized for me in my head. And then I was like, I understand how the city is shaped. And now I understand how to get where everything is, you know, without exactly. having to constantly like reference um, a map and I feel like it's a similar process with a creative project where it's like exactly. it's all there but because you're like touching different parts of it you can't see the shape of the whole and then exactly. suddenly it just materializes and you're like that's what it is that's it's actually it is. this whole world it's exactly. not a linear it's not a linear you know, process one two three and it's not a mess which is often what I feel like in the process heading towards it that I'm like Here's 300 random thoughts I have about facilitation that I've been like jotting down because I've been working on this book for a while now of just like whenever I'm doing facilitation, noticing the pivots, the turns, the instincts, the, the observations and just writing them down in very short, sweet little bits. Right. Because I want this to be something that people can just whip out and be like, boom, that's what I needed to know about how to do an adaptation right now. Um, but it also when I when you then look at it, you're like, oh, what what is this? And it kind of clicked. Like I'm like, if if this all goes according to plan, it's really going to be like a choose your own adventure book through facilitation and mediation. And it's geeking me out now. Like I'm super in in love with the book. And so basically, like if you want to learn more about this, turn to this page. Exactly. And then keep going. Like, I I actually I'm gonna try to pull off having people start in the middle, in the heart of the book, and then move out from there. In you know Ooh. you'll be able to like kind of weave yourself in a big infinity symbol back and forth between the content or I'm going to present like four different ways to read the book. Basically, it'll be like you can read it straight from front to back or you can start in the middle and do this thing or you can do a few other ways. And we'll see if it's, it's ambitious, formatic, format, formatically. I don't even know if that's a word. You know, when you're writing, you're just like, I also made up a word for what this is. But yeah, I do feel like that like I'm just like in it and enjoying it and How exciting the only thing that feels really like why did you do this is the idea that I was I, I set this goal for myself like finish this book before your sabbatical and so you can take mm. your sabbatical and mostly not be working on a book which oh, means oh interesting yeah because that's what I've done in the past that I think has taken away from like my breaks or my vacation time is Mm -hmm. my last sabbatical. I did a good job. Like I actually took a sabbatical and was mostly not working on another book project. Right. But then since, since before that, and then since then almost every other break I've taken has been to produce or finish a book project or some other piece of writing. And so it's like, I went to a beautiful location and I spent the entire time doing work and, but I love to work. You know, but it's well, also it's a different like, kind of work. It's, it's like, a different kind of work. And what really I want to do is actually get this part done 
so that if any writing does come during my sabbatical, that it can be fiction. Because fiction is, for me, a different kind of pleasurable experience of writing Mm -hmm. um, and world building. And I want to do a collection of short stories. Um, So I want to make room if that needs to come. But so that's where I am. That's what I've been up to for the past little bit. And it's I I keep thinking of these big moments. Like a few years ago, my friend Danny said something to me like, it's it's okay to take the time you need for your writing life. Like you shouldn't feel guilty about it. It's actually good news. And then recently my coach, Inka, um, similarly said to me, like, your writing is actually valuable and it's it's good. It's it's like you shouldn't feel bad about going to write. And it was just like such a breakthrough moment, which I feel like I've had a few times where I'm like, I really am a writer. Yeah. <laughs> like I really am a writer and it's where I feel like my contribution, a lot of times it's where I feel like my contribution can be the strongest as a human being. Like for the totally. time I have on earth, I'm like what I can do as a writer and how many people I can reach as a writer and, and how honest <laughs> I can be on the page. You know, I'm just like, I can really, um, like this is the quickest, this is the most efficient way to pass on what I keep learning. And yeah, 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 yeah. You know, totally. like I'm just like, oh, you know, trying to do workshops with people. I'm like, oh, I can only reach 20 of you at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two to four days is not like that much, you know. Um, and even with that, it's like, what's the depth? How, you know, like I can't cover it all comprehensively. We can have powerful experiences. But then when I'm like, oh, you fully immersed yourself in this book, that covered all the things I knew about that at this moment. And then you took it and experimented with it and made it your own. That is powerful to me. So that's where I've been with my writing process. And that's mostly what I'm focused on right now. Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute has two more immersions to do this year, one in Oakland and one in Puerto Rico. And I'm super excited about them. And I also am like, I have an incredible team now of people. So like, it feels like I'm in such a good place to go on sabbatical because I'm like, I trust my team. Like I've got amazing human beings and I'm excited to actually take a step away and get to see all the things that are going to grow in that space. So that's right. That's it. It's such a cool, it's such a cool, like practice of surrender and risk that you're taking by stepping away and then like, you know, orienting to like, yeah, when, when you return, you can't anticipate what will have taken place while you're that's gone. Right. And that's And I don't cool. want to, you know, I think the thing, my team knows this, and I, I guess I can tell the people, but I'm also not ever going to return in the same role. Like, I'm not interested in being a director of anything ever again in my life. So when I return, you know, I feel like I pushed the boat into the water and now the boat is floating, but I'm like, oh, I don't know how to maintain a boat. I'm not a boat captain. I don't know navigation. <laughs> You know, what I can do is tell you about boat pushing or whatever it is, right? Right, So I'm like, I should just be the teacher. I should be sitting over here offering, you know, whatever guidance people need around that particular piece. And so I'm excited about that too, um, to not not grasp tight onto like the founder piece, but be like, this is, I pushed it. I did a first push and now it's going to grow into some other things and I hope to continue to be useful. Um, I, I think I will. And I want to I want to be a contribution that really suits my skill set. And I I feel like this is I'm trying to break the the toxic patterns in nonprofit space where 
people just continue to push past what is their organic contribution and just try to do all this other stuff that they don't do well because that's the, our idea of a leader is you're supposed to be able to do everything. Yeah. I'm like, I can't do everything well. I can only do about 10% of things well, but I can beast those things and I should do that, <laughs> you know? And I'm 41. I just want to go beast the things I'm great at. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole problem of like, it's the pro- whole problem of hierarchy, right? That like the only way in hierarchy, the only way to advance is to change roles. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's like you can't advance inside the same pe- like body of work that you are exactly. already in. It's like you keep know? deepening, keep deepening. But I want to do it, I've been thinking about that exact point. Like I want to do it dojo style, right? Where it's like, I That's what it is. I'm so, um, I think literally like some kind of life arousal happens for me when I'm around like an Aikido dojo or jujitsu or something where I'm just sort of like, wow, y'all just stay in here and you keep rigorously practicing the same moves until you master them until they come naturally to you. And, and that's what, you know, it's just like, Oh, this is the art that I'm great at. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that for myself. And then I want to create that kind of dojo like environment for other people who want to learn the things that I know well. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, like structurally, I was just thinking about how like, um, like, Oftentimes, spiritual centers, like centers of spiritual practice, will have that role differentiation where there's a guiding teacher or a spiritual teacher, and then there is the administrative arm of that spiritual center, and that might include an executive director, but those people are not the same people. And so it just, it seems like a really, really smart, smart move to like let those roles be differentiated that like the people who are going to guide us on the teaching don't need to be the people who take care of um the institution right and actually as long as the the people who are taking care exactly (laughs) exactly but that's how most of these institutions are set up but it's like as long as the people who are taking care of the institution part are values aligned that's what that's all that matters well and i think that it gives more people more opportunity to participate and to give to movement work this is what i think all the time because for me you know, that that quote that's um, that was on Grace's wall that's in, in Emergent Strategy where it's like building community is to the collective what spiritual practice is to the individual. I think about that so mm-hmm. often that what we're doing as movement workers, some of us are doing the spiritual work of building relationships in our community and it's a spiritual work and we should be doing that well. And that doesn't necessarily translate to all the other structures that also need to be around that. But all of that is movement work. And I've really been... I've been shifting away from the language of like organizer versus healer or versus other things mm-hmm. and moving towards these are all different ways to be in movement work. But movement yeah. is this larger, yes. massive container that needs all different kinds of work. It needs healers. It needs cultural workers. It needs on the street organizers. It needs administrators. It needs and operation managers. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So. I love all the things I've been sharing (laughs) about my writing process and that life and the lessons there. And I really want to hear what's going on with you. I feel like since the last time folks got to hear from you, it was like, I am finalizing this massive transition in my life. We are moving to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I mean, I keep saying Minnesota. We're moving to Minneapolis from Mm -hmm. living in rural Minnesota up north somewhere for 
years now. Yeah. And I want to hear how has it been moving into society in this different way now? There's so much that has changed. <laughs> yeah, so we we made the big move um on over Labor Day weekend, we made the transition from um our home in central Minnesota out in the middle of the woods to um to two new apartments in the Twin Cities. Um and it has been like so the transition has been so much better than I anticipated that I could have anticipated. Oh wow. Um not that there haven't been really rocky moments just related to like like the logistics of three country bumpkin kids trying to navigate (laughs) like we live in a city now and you know going from um not riding a school bus at all to having to navigate multiple um like yeah but busing to multiple locations um they have been however like this this process has shown me the resilience of my children in a way that like I I just had no idea. Like I know my children are amazing. I had no question about whether they could handle it. Yeah. But I definitely didn't anticipate them being as adaptive and strong and brave as they've been. Uh-huh. Um and that's been just it's just been gorgeous to watch and like and leaning on each other. It seems like, yeah, like we had an, we had, they, they had a very intense experience where the first day of school, they got off the bus at, um, the wrong bus stop. They got off the bus at the bus stop for my house instead of their dad's house, even though they were uh. supposed to be going to their dad's that day. And it wasn't their fault. They were like told mm-hmm. to get off the bus there. And so I got a call from, Um, my co-parent saying, do you have them? And I was like, holy shit, I know what's going on. So I tore out of my, and that was also the day that I was moving to (laughs) my new apartment, right? So I'm like in my apartment, setting up all my stuff, get this call from my co-parent. And so I throw on my shoes, tear out of the building, run three blocks to where I, I know that they're supposed to be. Yeah. And I don't see them at first. And so I'm just like, you know, the feeling for any parents who are listeners, you know that like when you think your child is missing, it's like the worst feeling in the world. It's like physically, it's like the worst sensation. (laughs) And no, I told you Siobhan like disappeared from the movie theater for like five minutes when I took them to the movie. And I literally was like, I'm going to kill every person in here until they give me that child back. Like it was like I went yeah. directly to like you went, you go, like you definitely go directly. My heart to was like pounding in this way that. I, yeah. Yeah. It's it's very, very scary. And so I'm standing there at the intersection where I believe they're supposed to be wildly looking around. And then I look to my my left and I see them at the other end of the block hand in hand, Mm. walking in the other direction. Mm. And so I run after them and I yell until they hear my voice and turn around and they all just in unison burst into tears and run towards me. And then we hug it out. And then they explain that like they basically stayed put as long as they felt comfortable staying put. And then they decided they, because they didn't know where to go, they just decided to 
hold hands, pick a direction, and walk in the direction that they thought that their dad's house might be in. And <laughs> so, um, and and then my co-parent basically like drove around and hopped out of the car, and we all reunited, and it was like. Um, and it, but, but we were so proud of them because it was like, they, they didn't know what to do, but they knew to stay together and they knew to take care of each other and to make sure that whatever decisions they made, they made together. And they were, they, and you know, they were, they were basically like, you know, probably it was like a total of 10 minutes that they were basically like out, out out of the bus on yep. the street, not knowing where to go. But yeah. like, that was their first day of school, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, and that's very much, a, that's part and parcel with like what it means to be making a major transition like this. Yeah. Where, where there's two huge transitions happening at the same time, both the transition in our family where they're having to learn to navigate a new a custody schedule essentially where they're going to mom's house versus dad's house at different times of the week. And they're also navigating moving to a different school and having to like figure out, um, all the pieces that go with going to school in an urban environment. And, um, and, and they're doing great. They're like amazing. Um, and so the last, you know, it's been almost two months since, since the move and the new start of school which is kind of amazing to think about like and I I love my new apartment I have amazing neighbors um, downstairs who are renting this apartment to me and they're also uh, friends and so we've started like a weekly family dinner and they love my kids and they're just so generous with us and like um, just really, I, I'm very, very lucky to have incredible community here. And I mean, yeah. I think that's the other thing that's made the transition so much more easeful is that, yeah. you know, I've been building relationships with people in the Twin Cities since I moved to Minnesota in 2010. Right. And so, and part of that is that I had a couple of existing friendships with people in the Twin Cities. But then I also, when I moved to Minnesota in 2010, I got a fellowship with Intermedia Arts, which was an arts organization uh-huh. that existed oh, in yeah, Minneapolis for many years. And so I, I started being able to build community right away. And so I had all of these longstanding relationships with people, both through friendship community work and also just my my own political work and so entering this community in 2019 it's like I've been so welcomed by people and who are just ready to hold me and hold my kids and show us a lot of love and make sure that we feel a sense of belonging Mm. um so I feel very supported. I love my new space. And the kids are really adapting well. It's an and awesome space. I love that there's an, basically like a little wing for them. I know. It's like <laughs> so, so perfect. It's like I close your bedroom doors and then I close another door to your hallway. And then it's like private space. Um, so so a couple of really exciting things have happened recently um, for me and for them. And one of those things is that... Um, my two youngest kids, Siobhan and Maraid, auditioned and got into their elementary school musical, um, which is the, <laughs> the Lion King kids. And then the circle of life. And then Sorry, about three weeks later, <laughs> they finally the people who got actual speaking roles in the musical found out who they were cast as and my middle child Siobhan was cast as Nala in The Lion King. And so 
Um, I think that I about had a heart attack and died when I learned because I am, I am just like a monster stage mom in the waiting in the wings to be released onto the, 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 the volunteers that are going to help support this musical process being put together. So you're going to make sure her light is always right, baby. Exactly. I'm just like, let me not be that person. In fact, so here's the hilarious thing. Please don't. In fact, in fact, I, I can, the school is so prepared for people like me because when, <laughs> when Siobhan came home with her script, she also came home with a booklet that was written for families about like how to support your kid being in a musical. Wow. And one of the pages of the booklet is titled Don't Be Mama Rose, referencing a character from Gypsy, like a monster wow. stage mom. Oh, from yeah. The- <laughs> The and I was like, monster stage wow, mom. like these folks really understand who people yes. like me are and are like, do not do this to your child. These are the things to not do to your child. Well, and them. I love that they have <laughs> anticipated <laughs> this because it's like this is actually a performing arts school. <laughs> and so we know that most of the parents who are making sure their kids go in here may have some dreams of their own musical right. history may have some or whatever background, that some they trauma. need to like move through. Mm. People might have some broken dreams that I they're trying to act out through star. their children. Yeah. So yes. I, it was, that was really hilarious to see. Now, but how did, how is that for Maraid? Our little mm. Capricorn. Cause I, feel okay, like, let me tell mm. you, they get off the bus, right? <laughs> Siobhan mm-hmm. gets off the bus first. She runs towards me, holding up her script, screaming, Mom, look! Mom! And I can see on her script that the word Nala is written on the front. Oh and I'm like, gosh. oh, my God! You know, so oh we were just goodness. like... And then I look behind her, and Maraid has walked off the bus, sort of smiling, but also, like, she's trying to smile, but she's actually holding back tears, and then she just starts crying. And then she says to me, oh. I didn't get a speaking part. Oh, so, so honest. So, so she's just weeping. And Siobhan immediately tries to sort of, like you know, stomach her reaction a little bit. Um, mm. And oh. it was really interesting. So we had like about an hour where we were really navigating Maraid's disappointment, Siobhan's excitement. Um, Maraid Your is excitement. like my excitement. So I basically kept like pulling Siobhan into a different room and then we would like dance around and make no, make like silent screams with our mouths. A and then I would King step back. Court time. Exactly. Then step back out into the dining room and be like, it's okay, Marid, let's have a snack. And like, let's talk about, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so we talked a lot about the importance of like persistence. We talked a lot about the importance of the chorus itself and the role that the chorus has in actually moving the plot and action of a of a, of a play and yeah. you know that every role is important and actually the role of the chorus is very critical and um and then I also just told her a little bit about my own history that like you know I was like girl I did not get a lead role in a play until my senior year of high school like right. I had to persist and persist and persist That's and then right. my senior year of high school I got cast as the lead in both the fall and spring productions and it yes, felt like you did and you it felt like such star. a reward because mm-hmm. I had really really worked hard for it you know and Didn't so she was like Desdemona wasn't that no, so Who I played in in the in the fall. I played Beatrice and Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, um, who did you play in the spring? In the spring, I played um, Aldonza in Man of oh, La Mancha. That um, role, okay. 
That was that was it was a very hard role and it was, was a lot a of very work. Hard role for a and high school. I mean, like anyone. It was a very yeah. intense musical for a high school to put on because there's like I a gang rape believe. scene. Exactly. And, like, I'm like, all I can't <laughs> there's like they did that. I know, but that yeah. was like I was very lucky. I had a very very my the musical director theater teacher in my high school, which was also a magnet school. Um, she was very um, brave and she was a yes. very hard worker and she was very interested in sort of like pushing the boundaries of what people thought was possible yes so anyway so all I remember sitting next to dad watching that yeah oh dad yeah that was there were some (laughs) there were some really hard scenes in that show to watch anyway I mean I have to say I'm so proud of you so proud of y'all for landing this way you know like it feels like through the fire the children were kept so at the center of the concerns and the decision making. And it just feels like that's, you know, the fact that they landed, that it was like, okay, it's going to take a miracle to pull this off. But if we pull this off, they're going to get to be in the best possible situation for them. Yeah. And they're going to get to be in, I mean, for three kids who are all drama queens of life, like, being mm. able to be in a school that's like we're going to harness all of that and move it into something beautiful and channel and it through and discipline it, like, and rigor honey <laughs> i mean it's such a gift right it, it is helps a, it's you truly not truly a gift i think it's i mean i i think for all of us you know i think about that for us growing up that it's just like finding the arts finding the fact that we could create and act and write and sing and like release so much of life in those artistic ways i think it's a game changer i think it saves lives I mean, the thing that is of perpetual interest to me is like, what conditions do you want to live in? Like, what conditions do I want to live in? And one of the things my sweetie tells me sometimes is like, there's a way that you can really transform any experience into a pleasurable experience. Like, it really is a state of mind. Like, how are you meditating? How are you focusing on pleasure? And I'm like, but what about that experience? (laughs) You know, like, like, how apocalyptic can it get? And I can still do the radical work of of transitioning my awareness to the pleasurable aspect of it. And I don't know, I think of it, I think maybe this is a great transition for us though, into talking about our resilience um, and like Mm. what has been our resilience, because it does feel like, um, you know, I'm in this moment of, of writer delirium and I'm very happy in it. Right. Like even as I look around and I'm just like, you know, as a Virgo to look around my house and be like, there's a pile of clothes by my door there's literally four different options of slippers right by the bed. There's dishes in the sink. Like there's all these things mm. and I'm writing. And so there's a way that I look at each of those things as like a sign that I'm like, I am giving myself so completely to my writing process and letting my mm-hmm. writing process be um, that that feels like a form of resilience to me. Like that in spite of this weird, um, not weird, traumatic moment of being a human where so much of our future is in the hands of people who seem to care so little. It is incredible to then to still say, oh, I can still produce joy in my home and I can still produce work that I'm proud of and I can still produce work that I think will help revolutionary um, workers from now into the future. And that right. that feels like resilient practice for me. Mm-hmm. Um I'd love to hear and share a little bit more about some of these pieces. Like, what do you feel like have been resilience practices for you in this transition phase? 
Well, and it's interesting, like, one of the things I, I just thought about in relationship to what you just shared is that, yeah. like, you know, because I, I teach you such pretty to- wrists. Thank you. I know. What? I just saw you put Thank your hand you. up. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, Pretty wrist. Thank you. you, bet you. <laughs> now hold it right uh, there for the rest <laughs> of the call. I'm just going to have my hair. We should put a picture right. of your wrist as the art for this That should show. be it. Exactly. And then people won't understand what it is until the end of the episode. Um, I like it. So, I'm here for it. Um, so what you were just sharing about like I can still produce this work even inside these conditions yeah made me help me remember that I I I do really understand and believe that core to resilience is a sense of agency yeah and you know in my in my political work I have I do a lot of focus on resilience practices especially right now uh-huh. and especially in the context of uh, supporting folks of color in movement spaces, yeah, and 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 that's just a it's a piece of wisdom that I just return to again and again. That like my my resilience in a particular situation is very much connected to my sense of agency over my own life. That's right. And I would say that like um, that has been again, in part because of actually being able to physically geographically move locations, I feel like that has been part of my resilience and recovery from the nightmare that has been like the last year of my life is finally recovering a sense of agency and having a real sense of like, um, all right, like I'm, I'm creating a new home for myself and for my children. I'm recovering a sense of, control over my daily life and what kinds of interactions I'm going to have and not have and how I'm going to spend my time. Um, Whereas, you know, so much of the spring and the winter of last of this last year, there was, you know, there was so much panic and such a sense of really not being in control of the conditions of my life, you know? Um, And so it's really been very healing for me to find resilience in like in not in like a particular self-care practice or not in like like I definitely haven't gotten back to a place of having any kind of like daily physical practice or anything like that it's more right now my resilience is coming from I am choosing where these pictures hang on the wall I am (laughs) I am going to the store with my child and picking out some clothes with them that are just for hanging out on the weekend. I am um, making this discreet choice. I am making this discreet choice. And all of those discreet choices are choices that I'm making that are about building my new life. And they're, they're wholly mine. And, and that is because it's, because it's like helping me recover a sense of agency and control over my life. That is giving me a sense of, it's helping me see my own resilience in the face right. of like what's happened, you know? That's right. I mean, you know, in the somatics world, like the way that we teach resilience is it's really that. It's like how do we recover, bounce back? How do we recover to um, to our full selves, our whole selves? And sometimes it's like we're recovering something that is before our existence or before what we mm-hmm. have known of ourselves, you know? Like I think about that. Um, as I've, I've been doing some really deep healing work, um, over the past year and a half, two years. And in some ways I'm like, Oh, like, 
I thought, you know, like I thought I was becoming an adult at 21 and then I thought I was becoming an adult at 27 and I thought I was becoming Mm -hmm. an adult at 33 and like there's these major moments and now I think it again that I'm like, oh, most of my adult life has been lived in reaction to forces that I wasn't even really aware of. And that's, I did a great job inside of all that and I've lived a really powerful life and, um, there's a way that I'm like, oh, but I'm bouncing back in some ways to the full potential of my miraculous being, the more that I'm able to understand what shaped me. And I'm like, oh, if y'all thought, you know, if y'all thought I was coming for this life (laughs) before, like, I just feel like a whole nother level of power and magic and connectivity to the universe unlocking in me right now. Um, Mm -hmm. that feels like it's only possible, you know, resilience and trauma go together, right? It's like, it's only possible because I'm being very honest about the trauma of my life. And that's allowing me to become very resilient. Um, and, uh, I recently had the experience at the school of embodied leadership training. Um, I'm one of the teachers and we often will demonstrate like activities that folks are going to do. And we got to demonstrate one on resilience and my friend Mm. Spenta, um, was my was the person leading the demonstration and um, and I trust Spenta like to the ends of the earth and back so I was able to really just give myself to her she was like feel for your resilience like feel for it and I was able to just drop in and feel um, all the way down into that place that's like oh I'm I'm whole and I'm completely connected like there's nothing broken in me there's nothing to fix in me Um and I'm absolutely lovable, right? I was able to tap into mm. that. And, you know, I think like many. Yeah, you are. I am, you know, but it's deep, especially this period of my life has been so wild because I get a lot of public affirmation and people being like, I love you so much. And right. Um, but it's hard to let that in if down in your core, you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not lovable. Right. Yeah, um, like what happens is all of that just falls into a black hole and you're like, you love the things I produce. And so I will have to keep producing those things and then you'll keep In loving order to me. receive love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's a cycle that I don't want to be in. I don't want to be in that cycle. And so it's just so beautiful to do this practice and remember like before I ever produced anything, I was lovable. Before anyone ever knew my name, I was lovable. And it will be that way if and I go on sabbatical and everyone forgets who I am. That'll be fine. <laughs> you know, like I'll still be a lovable person and I'll still be um worthy of connection you know adrian you are unforgettable (laughs) you're saying to me bitch (laughs) in every way and forevermore that's how you'll stay are you gonna put that on the album will you cover that should I? I've been I think thinking that maybe it's the album so just needs to be covers. I mean, at least you need to do an <laughs> album of covers. And then... I do need to do an album of covers. That's what you need to do. An album of covers actually, and an album of original music. All right. Okay, I'm glad we and had And actually, talk. Nehemiah can support on both of those things because Nehemiah can do... Literally. Everything. Nehemiah can literally do anything and everything. And it's like, it's good practice. Yeah. Go back, go forward. Yeah. I love that. And... I you love know, you and you are unforgettable. I mean, I feel unforgettable to certain people in this time. And there's also, for me, there's something very comforting about the idea that I will be forgotten. I don't know how to describe that, but like, mm. like that what I want my legacy to be is not my name, but like these ideas that I have contributed to in my lifetime. You know, right. like I'm really like if in a billion years people 
humans still exist in some way. And they are humans who are in a deep practice of pleasure and accountability and right relationship to the planet and small things. Um, And I get to be a part of weaving that kind of future for our species. Like I'll be super lit in whatever kind of heaven-like astrophysics plane whatever I'm on I like, like this idea it's yes. like it's like because we're still at the point in relationship to the idea of evolution where people yes. like the idea of evolution is more well known than the scientists who first posited the idea exactly. but we're still in that zone where people like kind of vaguely have a sense of who the person was who first put forward this concept yes but like eventually this concept will just be pretty like disconnected from the person who who first articulated it and I like the idea that like that like a thousand years from now people are talking about emergent strategy yeah and like maybe with totally different language because I mean probably you know like when I look back like you know there's certain times they'll all have Southeast Asian accents dreams come true like (laughs) and be speaking some whole other languages with that perfect accent but I feel like Mm -hmm. there's like the future is unparalleled but I do think that like there's probably ancestors who look at my work and they're like okay I mean we already did that like a billion years ago before this called America we already understood all that but thanks for putting it in like modern language or whatever I'm like cool as long as I picked it up and handled it well I'm cool with that. And even that feels like resilience to me that like the more I can let go of my individual ego need to be approved and affirmed, which is not like that's not there. Like I like being liked. It's really sweet to go to events or go someplace and people be like, I love you. You changed my life. (laughs) That's fucking great. And now I'm just like, (laughs) you know, what I try to do in those moments is instead of saying, taking it in as like, I'm so great. I try to just say thanks for letting me know that because I did not get to tell Octavia Butler that. I didn't get to tell Audrey yeah. Lord that. I didn't get to tell Tony K. Bambara that. I have not gotten to tell many of the people who have shaped and changed my life because of their writing. I didn't get to say it to them in real time, you know? Totally. Um, I think with Octavia, I was just like, oh, thank you. You know, like I didn't get to really say, because I didn't know then, right? Like you're cha- right. you're going what to you change my whole yeah. life. Um, so it feels like let, letting that in and I always try to pass some of it back like Octavia I hope you heard that because that was for us you know like I'm yeah. partnered with y'all and it's working you know totally um, what about you what's another resilience practice you're in or mm. feeling right now wow it's such a good challenging question ice cream um, ice cream ice cream <laughs> just kidding <laughs> how did you know I just because I visited you recently and I was really really <laughs> impressed <laughs> the collection of ice cream that you had <laughs> it's a it's quite yeah it's quite the thing well you know because I'm still in that zone with with my kids in particular where um my one of my one of my closest friends um uh, when when I was making the big move she was supporting me um over that weekend with the big move and I was like having a moment where I was kind of crying and falling apart about like how empty my space appeared to me after Uh, moving all of my stuff into it uh and she was like kind of kneeling next to me and I was just like how am I going to fill this space how am I going to make it feel like home for my kids and she was like autumn what do your kids need right now they need to be hugged they need sleep and they need to be able to eat whatever they want for the first month that they live in this house. That's right. <laughs> yes. 
This is my dear, my dear beloved friend Mary Rose. She yes, was just Mary like Rose. they Preach. need touch, they need sleep, and they need to eat whatever they want for the first month at least. That's right? right. And so I took that advice so to heart. So yes. my entire focus of my parenting right now has been like like cuddling my kids as much as I can. Yes. Um, making sure that they're getting as much rest as possible. Yeah. And then basically feeding them whatever they want to eat, you know. <laughs> with, I mean, and, and right now I'm in the process of like kind of drawing that down a little bit and making sure that like <laughs> we're like pretty much exclusively shopping at the co-op so that we're like at least getting the organic versions of junk food. If, if I there's believe any, in like, that method. I believe Yeah, it's just like, okay, method. we'll get the boom chicka pop popcorn, okay? Exactly. That's what we'll do. Um, <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, so we're, we're leaning, we're leaning all the way into like really, um, eating, eating kind of, um, luxuriously. And that includes having a lot of ice cream on hand at all times. And I've also been making the kids and myself smoothies every day. Um, frozen, frozen fruit smoothies. Yeah. It's such a workable snack. Um, it is like it works for breakfast and it works when they get off the bus after breakfast, lunch, dinner, you can have smoothies for your whole, you can have smoothies for your whole life. Exactly. (laughs) Add a protein mix to it. You can call it a meal. Okay. So like they are all pooping really, really well. Um, but yeah, so so as evidenced by the fact that I immediately started talking about my kids in response to your question about what is my resilience practice. I was going to point that out, but um, I was like, too soon. Yeah, it's it's cool. No, I already know. Um, <laughs> the great thing about being smart is that I already know. You're like, I already know <laughs> everything I'm up to. Fucks um, with me, therapist. Fucks with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I feel like I'm a little, I'm, I'm definitely unmoored from my own resilience practices at the moment. I'm having a hard time like getting a handle on, um, on how to like, uh, get enough rest. Uh Um, this weekend, um, I was supported by a beloved person in my life to, really schedule like block off time this weekend for my creative work. And so, um, I'll be spending part of today and most of tomorrow in, um, basically just doing some writing, um, because I haven't had any meaningful time to do writing since I left Vermont in March. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a long time ago. (laughs) And, um, so I'm excited about having, and I, I actually anticipate that I'm going to spend a chunk of the afternoon today just reading um, because that tends to really support my writing process. That's right. And one of the- out, Reading one your of own the, work? No, um, reading just a piece of fiction that I've been wanting to read for a while because nice. I, for, for me, one of the things that jumpstarts my writing process is like reading a book. Yeah, um, that's and, so good. Um, I remember when I went on my first writing residency in Vermont back in 2016, I basically, the first day I was there, I sat down and read the entirety of Cormac McCarthy's The Road in a span of five hours. Oof. And that like kicked off my actual residency, you know, because right. I'm a very fast reader when it comes to fiction. I can complete Same. a book really quickly. Only fiction um, and it's yeah, only fiction. Nonfiction exactly. is the opposite. Um, it's like why nonfiction is just like, well, we'll just do this paragraph this and then we'll go take a cigarette break. This is literally um, my <laughs> trick as like why I write everything like all my nonfiction writing, I write it like conversationally because I'm like, I don't know about y'all. <laughs> exactly. 
read sentences. How about this? Like academic sentences um, lose me three three words in. Exactly. Like, but yeah, hegemonically, so, I'm like, nope. Sorry. Nope. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think I'm I'm doing. I've got some writing work I'll do this weekend, and I am taking a very short vacation at the beginning of November. Um, which I really need because I'm doing a, I have a very intense travel schedule for the rest of November and December. Um, but I'm trying to basically, and, and some of my coworkers yesterday actually just supported me to block off like a two week chunk of time at the top of next year to take more time off. Um, because I, you know, everyone is just aware, right. That like, I have not had any rest I didn't get any rest this summer for damn sure. Like I just am very, very, very fucking tired. And um, yeah, and I didn't, you know, as I've shared now with my listeners, uh, with our listeners, um, I didn't get a sabbatical when I went on sabbatical, you know, like that's not what happened. The, the thing that my leave did teach me was that like, my time matters more than my work. That's right. And, That's right. Um, and I want, I want to retain that lesson. I don't want to slip back into any kind of behaviors that look like I'm centering my work over my own life. Do you so, have that written up in yeah. like places around your house? I don't. So that's something. I Let's do, do that. Okay. Let's do that. I really, I put, I, I will tell you like right now when I sit in my bed, um, when I wake up, the first things I can see, it says, Birds coast when they can. Trust the value of your ease. And mm. your value is beyond what you can produce. Your value is I beyond what that. you can produce. And I those are two that. things that like came out of me at some point during coaching or therapy sessions or something. And it was like, oh, I need this. I need it to be reminded of this like as soon as I wake up every day because I get so caught in oh, I need to produce, I need to give, I've never given enough. And like that, I think that's kind of one of the trappings of doing work for social justice is like, you're never ever going to do enough in that way. Like, because you can still see that justice has not been won for all people. So there's always more to do. And it's very easy to, to tie yourself up in that loop. And then there's a way that it's like, oh, how do ants feel about their production? How do birds feel about their production? How do I touch back in? Like, how do children feel about their production? And mm-hmm. dropping back into that part of me that's like, I am not my production. And being part of community means that I also get to take breaks and I also get to have ease. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. If you like everything about us and you want to support our livelihood, you can become a supporter of our work by going to patreon.com slash into the world show. Another super helpful thing you can do that also really does help this show sustain itself is to write a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. This show was produced and edited by the dreamy and steamy Zach Rosen. <laughs> Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Autumn Brown and Nat King Cole in a way. Um, That's right. All right. In the so, tradition. Our Easter egg today is. So I was reading through the <laughs> um, 
the the reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I noticed a review from someone who said, "I just want to say I'm rooting for Autumn's really anxious dog." And I was realizing that for those among our listening crew who maybe have been rooting for Bran over the years and have special feelings about animals, there may be some like anxiety about like, well, what happened to Bran in this move process? And I wanted to share with folks. He got an upgrade. um, (laughs) That Bran got a serious upgrade. Because as you Mm. know, Bran, my relationship with Bran, my family's relationship with Bran has been strained basically from the moment he came into our home. And um, a magical thing happened. So I had been trying to find a home for Bran um, throughout the summer and had not been able to find a home for him. And so there came a week, it was like the middle of, it was the the same week as Finn's birthday. So it was like the middle of August and I had made an appointment. I had scheduled an appointment to surrender Bran at the Humane Society. And everybody's um, crying about it. Everybody. We were all upset. I mean, it was really intense too, because uh, up until I scheduled the appointment, I was like, I just can't wait to get rid of this dog. And then as soon as I scheduled the appointment, I started to feel a real sense of like, heartbreak about it yeah and and as the days drew closer and closer to the actual appointment I just felt the sense of like this can't be it like I can't this can't be it you know it's like it's not Bran's fault like the way Bran is it's not his fault that he drools all over the place it's not his fault that he's anxious it's not his fault that he's not and it's not that it's well not behaved. his fault that he that he was adopted by a family that truly just didn't have the capacity or attention for him, you know. That's right. Um That's right. so Baby. but this magical thing happened, which was that um we threw a birthday party for Finn on Finn's birthday. And <laughs> as per usual. <laughs> as per usual. And one of the families that came to the party and brought their child met Bran and then heard my tale of woe about the mm. fact that I was like about to you know, four four days hence was about to drop him off at the Humane Society. You better say hence. And okay. they were like, um, we're actually looking for a companion for our dog and your dog is awesome. And I was like, uh, my dog is incredibly anxious and actually needs to be on anti-anxiety medication in order to manage that. So like that would be something you'd have to be willing to take on as a part of having him if you're actually interested. So they talked amongst themselves. They asked me to drop Bran off with them for an hour to like socialize the dogs together. So two days later, I brought Bran over to their house and dropped him off for a little while, left, ran some errands. When I came back, the two adults in the family, the mom and dad, were sitting on the front step with both of the dogs like sitting calmly between their legs. And I was like, oh, my God, Bran. Oh, my God. Bran is going to be so well taken care of, so spoiled, so loved in this family, right? Like it was just immediate. It was so immediately clear that this was the right fit. So then the yes. next day with you by my side, oh, no. we drove back to their house and we left Bran and all of Bran's special brand items with this new family. And then we left and... And Bran, I have to say, was so chill, like was so brave and chill. It's just sort of like, I love y'all. I'm going to give you a little bit of like nose, you know, energies. I know you did your best. Like I felt so like peacefully released um, (laughs) as Bran's auntie. You know, I was just like, thanks, dude. Like no hard feelings. Like I gave you as much secret meat as I could through this time. Like I really tried to love you 
as much as I could, you know, given the smells. And I feel and like I was, did good. And, yeah, and I, he looked I happy. I feel like he, he was very happy in the transition. And I have felt very peaceful about it. Like I didn't. Yeah. I didn't get upset in the process of transitioning him. Yeah. And I haven't felt any anxiety about it since. I just feel yeah. very much at peace with the fact that he has a wonderful new home. So I just wanted our listeners to know Yay. Brand found a new home. Brand Yay. is happy. I am happy. I'm and also the happy. kids the kids are also very happy very that Brad found a new home. <laughs> Everybody's very happy. Everybody's Yay. happy. And you know, right. now we just have a turtle baby in the family. For another time. Right. For another time. For another time. Future turtle stories. Future turtle stories. All right. All right. I love, love everybody you. who's listening this far. I love you so much, sister. I love you too. All right. Go eat. Bye. Bye, bitch. <laughs>